welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone that changed my life in a major way through their music, Brian Ritchie from the band The Violent Femmes, also did solo stuff, and, and more on that in one second, but this is a huge one for me. But first... If you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for this show. I love you, buddy. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast. We do a couple episodes a week and we talk to people about punk. You can also support it by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes. And thank you. Thank you to everyone that does do that. Or by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk and checking out some of the stuff that we put up over there. And huge, huge, huge thank you to people that do Check that out and support on that thing as well. There's um, video episodes, there's lost episodes, there's footnotes and all sorts of fun stuff. So you can find that over there at patreon.com slash turned out a punk. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they've helped me cover the cost of this thing. And I can't thank them enough for doing that because there are costs with this podcast. And guess what? The House of Vans is back October 30th in Chicago. There will be a House of Vans show. I don't think I will be attending. They haven't hit me up about attending, but there will be a House of Vans show back with the Melvins. So pretty big way to kick it off. So it's coming back, coming back. And speaking of coming back, the band I play in fucked up will be coming back to playing live shows <laughs> at some point in 2022. We're going to be going on tour in support of our 10th anniversary of the album David Comes to Life. I think that makes sense. It's going to be reissued by Matador Records. You can find out more information about the reissue on their site, but you can find out more dates for this fucked up tour that we're doing. We're doing a lot of shows, going to a lot of places. Chances are we're probably going to where you live right now. Maybe not, but chances, there, there's a chance. There's a chance. So you can find out more information about those dates over at fuckedup.cc. And also, Fucked Up will be putting out Epics in Minutes, finally, on vinyl, our first singles compilation. So if you thought we sucked after the first LP, you are in luck. The compilation of all the stuff prior to that is coming out on our friends at Get Better Records. You can pre-order that now. I think there's a few pre-orders left. I think it's almost gone. And uh, get that uh, in your hot little hands. And also you can get in your hot little hands Year of the Horse, Fucked Up's latest record, which is a hour and a half long song. And our good buddy Scotty Karate uh, will be putting that out on Tank Crime. So you can find out more information over there at Tank Crime's website as well. All right, that is that. On to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, uh, someone who played a huge role in my musical development through his music, Brian Ritchie from the band The Violent Femmes, is here on the show. Now, there are some people out there that do not consider The Violent Femmes a punk band. I <laughs> I am not one of them, and I don't know who these people are. But hopefully, 
if you are one of these people, this interview will put that to rest because to have Brian kind of contextualize them into the world of punk rock, oh, that's why I do this thing. That is why I do this thing. Also, maybe we can get Violent Femmes to reissue Rock, which is one of my favorite EPs. But anyway, we'll talk, we talk more about that in the show. You'll hear that in a second. Uh, before I let you listen to it, though, I need to inform you that the Violent Femmes have reissued for the 30th anniversary, Why Do Birds Sing? It just came out, uh, I think this past week, actually. So you can pick that up on vinyl. It's remastered. There's bonus tracks and all sorts of fun stuff on that thing. I think that record's amazing. Like, they are a band. All their records I find interesting and, and fun to listen to. But the record that they put out that's probably most important to me because of where it led me, you'll hear about this on the show as well, is the Greatest Hits package added up which I know picking a greatest hits record is a cop-out, but I, I think this record just stands up as a as a complete sort of reflection of how sonically diverse this band is. Anyway, that has also been reissued on vinyl for the first time, and so you can pick that up as well. i got to get that on vinyl. I don't have that on vinyl. I just have my old CD. Anyway, while I go out to the store and grab that on record, sit back, relax, and enjoy Brian Ritchie on Turned Out a Punk. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. How you doing, Damien? Well, I'm I'm very excited to talk to you. As I was just telling you off air, uh, years ago when I first got into, I don't know, punk music for, for a broad term, uh, you know, alternative music, whatever, interesting music, I should say, I went to a CD store in Calgary and I bought uh, a Violent Femmes added up, and I bought Circle Jerks double album with Group Sex and Wild in the Streets, and that was my gateway to the rest of my life. So I, I owe you a a debt and a huge thank you off the top. Well, we owe you and everyone else like you for giving us a reason to exist. Well, I appreciate that, and we'll see if you are still appreciating me at the end of this interview. But we got to start this off the way they all start, which is. Brian, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, um, that's kind of a difficult question because it, it also makes you have to define what punk is. But, I mean, I was already listening to some music, which now in retrospect I would consider punk, such as Iggy and the Stooges, Patti Smith, I was very much into Patti Smith when she came out um, and some other bands that kind of predated punk a little bit like television. Mm -hmm. Although uh, some people think that that is punk. So, uh, well, I, I think on this show, we consider it all punk. You know, we definitely, you know, I think Stooges, like you said, that's, that's a punk band. Yeah. So I was, I think really, okay. So there's the historic listening to music. Like for example, I was really into the Kinks. I was really into the Beatles, Stones, Hendrix, but not, that wasn't my generation. So the first generation appropriate artist that that was also punk that I really got into was probably was Patti Smith. And since she was in the New York scene and she was associated with Tom Verlaine, that 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 led me to Television, which is still still my favorite band. 
And that, of course, that led to Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Uh, but we were also into the New York Dolls. I mean, I don't know if that that would that predates you know the punk explosion, but that's what I think is so fascinating about it is because it's it's almost like a coalescing of all this sort of energy that's happening all over the world. Like in Australia, you know, you have Radio Birdman and the Saints going prior to any of the stuff coming out being called punk. You have Dr. Feelgood in England doing it. You've got, you know, it, it felt like this, there was sort of this energy, like you said, the kinks and the Rolling Stones is sort of like hearkening back to whatever strain of rock and roll that was. And sort of this sort of like energy that was sort of coming together throughout the seventies, it feels like. Well, yeah. And, and I was already into stuff like, uh, for example, the Blues Magoos, uh, Count Five, uh, the seeds and the seeds were extremely punkin. Mm-hmm. I mean, so anyway, I was I was already prepared for it, but then when the big explosion happened in 1976-77, I was right there with also with uh, uh, Clash, Sex Pistols, Wire, um, the Jam. You know, which some people probably see as a pop band, but I I saw them as a punk band because to me they sang. They dressed differently, but they sang the same way the Clash sang, and it, it, you know, it, it sounded like punk to me. And um, you know, Wire is still a great band, still one of my favorite bands. Devo, you know, and then there were Jonathan Richman and the Modern Lovers, or the Modern Lovers, if you wanted to say the Modern Lovers. In fact, I had lunch today with Jerry and Ernie from. That's the awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we go back a long way, and we were talking about the modern lovers, and it's interesting. I mean, they they were doing uh, punk way before it was called punk. Mm-hmm. I think if they had not split up, and if Jonathan had not like abandoned that musical concept prematurely, they would have gotten a lot more credit. Oh yeah, have. yeah. It's amazing to think of where they would have gone sonically too, because that record is just you know, and, it, and it's basically just a collection of you know recordings more than it is, even as an album. But it's just like it st- stands up as still ahead, so ahead of its time today. It's still it's still current, you know. Like I was, I was riding around in my car with my son, and he's a music fan, and he knows a lot about music. Obviously, he's my son, so. <laughs> Uh, but the, on the radio came the Modern Lovers, and I said, "So, what do you think of this band?" And, and, and you know, without telling him what it was, said, "Oh, they're great." I said, "So, when do you think this album was made?" Well, sounds like it's current. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Well, actually, do you hear that keyboard? Because Jerry was doing an organ solo. You know that guy." And he's like, who, who is it? I said, Jerry. And then he, then he kind of put it together. But he thought it was a current band that was just on the radio, you know, as something that was happening now. So, yes, you're right. It, they were very far ahead of the time. It's amazing when you hear, like, you know, Hospital, and there's that organ in the beginning that comes in so low. And it just seems like... Like, yeah, that's like something that bands now are still experimenting with, like tones and the use of tone on that record and just sort of like the the way he plays with the lyrics, too, in perspective. Like, there's just so much stuff on it that it's still weirdly underappreciated. 
well, it's their own fault. You know, <laughs> they, they split up before they even released an album. So tough luck, you know, I mean, you, you got to actually stick with the, the plan if you want to be successful. So, it, you know, whenever you see an artist and you say, oh, they're so underrated or what, it, it's usually something that they did. <laughs> it's not, it's not uh, the world conspiring against them. Where were you hearing about all this stuff? Because once again, this isn't really mainstream music, especially like bands like The Seeds and The Count Five. Like where where were you kind of discovering all this stuff? I guess it was probably Cream magazine mm -hmm. and uh, some other magazines like that. Uh, there was another one called Rock something. Rock. Rock scene? Yeah, right. Well, Lisa Robinson was, I think she was the editor or the main writer for that. And we ended up having an incident with her where we we locked her in. Well, we didn't lock her. We put sandbags. We sandbagged her into a studio that was next to the studio we were in when we were like we we're having a we we're on a bender actually. She was producing a band, and we <laughs> got the. We were so wasted that we got the bright idea to sandbag Lisa into the studio. So she never gave us any more good reviews after that. <laughs> Don't blame her either. It was entirely our fault. Um, I was going to ask, was Gulcher fanzine, like, you know, like other stuff from the Midwest, like, was that kind of getting on your radar? Like, you know, stuff that was happening in other parts of the area? We had our own fanzines and we made, we made our own fancy. So we had in Milwaukee, there were several fanzines. One was called Express, which was actually done by Kevin Kinney, who eventually became driving and crying oh that band from uh atlanta mm -hmm. well he's from milwaukee so we went to high school together and he had a fanzine there was another one that was called autonomy okay and it wrote it wrote about the the milwaukee punk band so we had our own fanzines we didn't we didn't try to read fanzines from other cities what about though the gizmos like did you did you know about them um i still don't know about it what is it they were like around like 76 uh 75 and they were uh they put out like a bunch of singles muff diving across the usa and once again like very kind of lo-fi but definitely you know modern lovers influenced you know television influence kind of you know formative early foundational kind of punk rock stuff I may have lost those brain cells <laughs> if I ever had them. Um, I was going to uh, ask you, though, uh, where did it kind of go from there for you? Like, what was the first sort of punk band you remember seeing? Actually, what was the first concert you remember going to? First concert was Yes. Oh, yeah. You're not the first person to say that. It was their first show that went into punk after that. Were you into prog stuff at that time, too? Yeah, well, I was into that initially. Mm-hmm. That was also was the first uh, record I bought was Yes. And I'm glad I did because the bass player, Chris Squire, is still probably my biggest influence. And you can hear that in my playing. So he, he was a, such a towering uh, genius of the bass that it's a good place to start. And then right after that, because Prague kind of led me indirectly, I guess, into sid barrett and then i got into the velvet underground this all happened in quick succession once i found the velvet underground of course that you know that led to the punk thing as well because you follow that 
and John Cale goes to the Stooges, Nico, and all that other stuff. And Lou Reed himself. I mean, Lou Reed was in the mainstream and uh, when I started, when I became kind of of age, but he was still at times very close to punk. Yeah. It's interesting when you like think about him in that era, like uh, where he sat in New York, where he was like, you know, like pretty heavy into drugs at that point and pretty, you know, like even though he was a big star and, and pretty mainstream, he never left the streets. Well, he was, he was a real character. You know, we, we knew him. I actually recorded with the Velvet Underground. Which oh, was, wow. Yeah. It happened because Victor, the drummer from the Femmes, and I, we were backing up Mo Tucker on one of her solo albums. And then, uh, you know, so we were recording a bunch of stuff. And then she said, oh, we're going to have some guests tomorrow. And then the next day there was Lou Reed, John Cale, <laughs> Sterling Morris, and, and then me and Victor. So, I mean, we to us, this was much more important than the Beatles reforming. Mm. And we were there, we're like, oh, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> the and us. And uh, she put that out, and it in almost nobody noticed that the Velvet Underground had reformed. And it was several years before they actually did reform and played at that thing in France that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just one of, you know, it's a good example of of how even though they're almost overrated, they're underrated. Yeah. Because they reformed, or I mean, it was her album wouldn't have been having much commercial uh, impetus behind it, but still you'd think somebody would notice. Nobody noticed. It's, it's almost like people can't appreciate these artists till they're gone. You know, like there's not like a, a, a real cultural understanding or it doesn't sink in on some level because yeah, like they are even Lou Reed. It's like, it's weird to think that how, how like just around he was until he passed away. And now it's, it's almost like he's deified. Well, I still hear people say, Oh, he can't sing. And you you hear them say that about Bob Dylan as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People are stupid. (laughs) So anyway, yeah. Lou Reed to me, he's, and John Cale. John Cale had the misfortune of being in a band with another, you know, incredibly strong figure, but they're both in the top 10 musicians who ever played rock music. Mm-hmm. So where'd you kind of go from? Yes. Like what, what was the next band that you kind of heard on your journey from there? Like, I, I, I sorry, you've mentioned getting into Floyd and, and the Velvet Underground, but where'd you kind of go from those bands? Uh, yeah, then, well, shortly after that, punk happened, and then, and then it was like, okay, I was also into early Roxy music, which I think is also very close to punk. Mm-hmm. Like, the first two or even three Roxy music albums were precursors of that. And then punk happened, so there were, all those bands came out, and it was like, I could see that they were almost my age and almost my ability, maybe a little bit more advanced, and uh yeah that then it was like okay now i've got a place to go because with yes it's like you look at them and you hear it and you appreciate it but it it did appear to be beyond my 
ability to do it myself or even to find other people to do it with. Mm. Whereas with punk, you listen to it and it's like, I can do that. <laughs> and then that's, that's what we did. Yeah, it's like that's like the ultimate power about the genre is the fact that it does say to kids and young people, like, you can do this. Like, some of the best music in the world is written by people under 30. And here's your permission slip. Go out and make it. Yeah, it's amazing how, uh, it, like you just said, under 30, or even the idea that Jimi Hendrix and, and many other people like Nick Drake and Jim, Jim Morrison, people like that died before they were even 30 years old after accomplishing some of the greatest work of the entire century, you know, and uh, now kids, they barely get out of the house before they're 30. Yeah. I don't see as much youth. Well, the youth culture doesn't seem to have as much influence on the culture as it did maybe in the earlier days of rock music. Well, it's interesting too, because like all the tools are so much more accessible now. Like any kid could basically record an album with a phone, you know, in like some sort of like rudimentary capacity. But like you're saying, like I, you know, I think about my own children and just like I was 12 when I was going out and buying your record for the first time. And I've got a 12 year old now and it just doesn't feel like that's the drive in the same way. Well, they have other interests and this is this is normal. Mm -hmm. We just didn't think it would ever happen like that because, you know, sometimes I explain this because I'm like, I'm a, a curator at a museum in Australia. So I have a staff and almost all, well, all of them are younger than me. You know, so sometimes I just try to explain when I was your age, there was nothing that you could aspire to that was cooler than to be a, a rock musician, except maybe if you wanted to be a basketball hero or something, but that was, but if you, if you didn't have the skills to play basketball or football or, or whatever, you knew that rock music was the only coolest thing that you could do. <laughs> yeah. Whereas now there are other things, you know, such as being a DJ, writing a graphic novel, developing a video game uh playing a video game my, my kids love people that just play video games now yeah they watch videos of people playing video games yeah oh so it's 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 just a different paradigm mm -hmm. no exactly and we want us we want to be nostalgic about rock music but but there are many things about the way that even the music scene is now that's better than, than it was in some ways than in the past. Like, for example, when I started in rock music, there was an idea or it was even it was expressed very frequently. Can women play rock music like they knew that that they could sing it like they knew that Janis Joplin could sing rock music, but could they play it, you know? And it's like, well, I always thought they could because I liked the runaways and, you know, there were a few examples of that, but now nobody thinks that way. Mm -hmm. So there's been some progress or the idea, can Europeans make rock music? It, 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 was, it was understood that Americans 
and the Brits could do it, and maybe even the Australians could, only because they were imitating the Americans and the Brits. You know, but now people understand that it can come from anywhere in the world. Yeah. There's been some progress. I think that happens in punk first, too, right? Like, that's where you have, you know, like, bands from all over the world, you know, trading their music and, and bands putting out records in different countries. You know, like, it felt like there was a tape chain, tape exchanges happening. And and it, it feels like a lot of this progress was happening kind of in punk first, in, in music. Yeah, I think so. But even punk was very... Like, for example, lately I've been listening a lot to The Slits. And and then I realized, I always liked The Slits, but the ca- canonical sense of the of punk was that there was this, like, pyramid, you know, where the, at the top was Sex Pistols. Slits would have been considered, like, third or fourth, fifth tier, you know. But now I listen to them more, much more than I would listen to The Clash or The Sex Pistols. But that's because who are the who are the people making the creating the canon men, mm-hmm. you know? And they're right. They're who's writing it? Who's saying this is the great, the only band that matters? So, you know this kind of stuff. So even with punk, I think that that there was still the idea that the Americans and the uh, Brits dominated, or even that New York, Los Angeles, London dominated. Like we had great bands in milwaukee but until the femmes hit none of them really were able to attain much prominence because they had no media push behind them and no record companies there so i think what you're saying is correct that punk was happening all over the world but it wasn't an equal playing field and still the people who lived in the right place which was london New York and somewhat LA, they had the advantage. Yeah. Oh, I think definitely because of media access, you know, if you're in one of those centers, you like, you have access to, like you're saying record labels, but also just like national radio, national press, like those things are at your fingertips. Like in Toronto, we kind of have the same privilege here too, but you brought up all those great bands. I wanted to ask you about the Haskells. Did you ever play with those guys? Uh, no, but I was a huge fan of theirs, and I probably saw them play about, I don't know, 100 times or something. Amazing. And their drummer, Guy Hoffman, ended up playing in the Femmes. He, he, he also played in the Oil Tasters, right? Yeah, and the Oil Tasters were even better than the Haskells. And their, their sax player, Caleb, he was our sound man for decades. And he played with the Horns of Dilemma. So he's on some of our recordings. And, and uh, yeah, they were an absolutely amazing band. Yeah, th- that there is so many great singles. Well, I guess the Oil Tasters put it a lot more than just a few singles. But in the case of the Haskells, like, there's just so many great singles that come out of that part of the country, part of the United States that you just don't hear about because, you know, they didn't have that access to like you know a big international magazine or or radio play or things like that yeah like i would say that the oil tasters are equally as good as any of the other bands of that generation mm. i found it interesting when you talked about that hierarchy that exists in punk and that pyramid because that you know is something that has been established but it kind of feels like it's almost getting upset now like when you listen to 
a lot of the newer bands that are coming out, especially in the UK, it's it's almost arguable that they're more influenced by bands like Gang of Four than they would be by bands like The Clash. You know, like you're seeing this sort of, and you're like you're saying the slits, like the slits, I think have definitely been culturally reassessed now, where people are viewing them as being one of the great bands to kind of come out of punk rock because they were so unique. Well, it took them a long time, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- this is what posterity can do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, it just erodes things even further. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you about what was the first lineup that you guys formed with the Violent Femmes when it was just the two-piece? Like, did you guys ever play shows or was there, what did it sound like? Well, we had... There, there are different points of the of origin of Violent Femmes. The name originated, and it was myself and Victor, the drummer. Mm-hmm. And we called ourselves Violent Femmes, no matter who we were playing with. Uh, so we were, were like a rhythm section for hire. Okay. Well, not even for hire, because we frequently would do it for free. But... <laughs> Anyway, we play with anybody, but we were called Violent Femmes, and they were called Damien or whoever. Yeah. You know? And then when we met Gordon, initially it was also called Gordon Gano and the Violent Femmes. But then when we decided to get serious, well, serious means let's form a band rather than let's just play ad hoc house gigs and stuff like that. Let's try to make a record and all this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. okay what's the name what's the name gonna be and of course we had this discussion and of course gordon had the suggestion why don't we call it gordon gano (laughs) and then victor and i said well why don't we call it violent femmes and then gordon said well why don't we call it gordon gano and the violent femmes and then victor and i were we were we talked to each other that's kind of like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, but now Bruce Springsteen's likely to go solo <laughs> and leave the E Street. No, how about if we call it Violent Femmes? <laughs> but we just kind of bullied him into it, and I think he still resents that. But you had played with him before, just on your own, right? Like, there's a, yeah. a, a story yeah. about that. Yeah, I played with Gordon especially one really memorable gig at his high school. And that was when Victor was, Victor was on tour in Europe with a theater company. And then, you know, we had so much fun playing at Gordon's high school. And I said, yeah, there's this great drummer I play with, but he's not here. But when he comes back from Europe, we should get together with him. And that's pretty much how that happened. And that one show you played though, he got like expelled from the school, according to the legend. It's not a legend. It's true. I get, well, there's truth to the legend. I get, so it is a true story then, but, uh, what was, uh, was it just because of like the, the sonic of it or was it actually just like a a crazy show itself? Well, we did give me the car. So this song is like, come on, girl, give me your cons. And it's like, we're going to get high. We're going to, you know, at that time that was, I mean, that was pre-rap or rap maybe existed in the underground, but it wasn't, everywhere so that kind of language and those sentiments in a high school <laughs> yeah was unacceptable at that time now it would probably be okay yeah um where did you kind of start so you guys like you know uh, once again this is the the famous story is that you guys would practice up by playing on the street busking basically yeah 
Did you guys play uh, real shows as well at that time? We wanted to, but we we had difficulty getting gigs, so that's the reason why we would do that on the street. We called it playing on the street. We did not know the word busking. Okay. We did it in England, and everybody said, oh, now you're busking. And we're like, what? <laughs> we had never heard the word before. So We have yeah. Busker Fest here, where they, they it's like an international festival where all different street performers from all over the world come in and perform so it's like it's such a storied art but like i guess with you guys it's also just out of necessity more than trying to tap into that art form yeah first we we have to be considered one of the most successful definitely busking stories in history (laughs) yeah there's that story that uh i guess sid and johnny would play they would go on the street and busk and people would play them to pay them to stop playing so i think you guys are definitely more successful than they were in that regard um what was the scene like though like when you were trying to play shows was it just because you guys couldn't get into the punk scene to play these shows or these clubs were just not accepting new bands or well they just thought we sucked and then furthermore we were playing acoustic instruments so they said you're you're not rock musicians you're folk musicians Mm. and i would say something like have you ever heard Elvis Presley, the Sun Sessions. Have you ever heard Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps? And they're like, "Huh, what's that?" And so, you know, they didn't understand that that what we were doing was really very much like the origins of rock and roll. But they're idiots. <laughs> we're a bunch of fools from Milwaukee. They thought that, uh, like Leonard Skinner and that kind of stuff was was what rock music was was there much of an experimental music scene too there at the time well in retrospect there was i mean there were a lot of people doing it and every one of those bands had about 10 or 15 fans (laughs) and every one of those fans was in another band that had 10 or 15 fans so it was a you know there were maybe in 1970, let's say 76 through 80 or something like that, maybe there were a thousand people who were really into this stuff. And of that thousand, maybe 500 of them were doing it. You know, like they were either in bands, they were avant-garde artists, or they were DJs on a radio station playing the music or writing fanzines or making posters or something. So. There were hardly any public that was into it and almost everybody that was into it was also doing it mm-hmm. which i guess is different than what we're talking about happening now where there's a lot more spectators on things than you know it, it, you're not necessarily encouraged to get involved in the same way with with it in a lot of the music scenes now well no i, mean, I shouldn't say that a lot but it feels like it, there's more of a barrier of entry now to doing things well the whole professional amateur thing is it's a it's a uh, it's a contrivance but we we just thought we were amateurs because we just didn't think it was possible we didn't think it was going to be possible to be professionals although the fems did you know quickly become professionals at a, like to the extent where we didn't have to work other jobs we were making enough money to live on as bohemians and we had everything else we needed in life, like pleasures. Did you guys, uh, had you guys recorded it before that Pretenders 
show, that first Pretender show? I don't think we had recorded our demos yet. So what was the goal in the band at that point? Because like, obviously now like Violent Femmes are, you know, one of the most important bands that kind of come out of this thing, you know, and, and you shaped music, but like at the time, like you're saying, there's not really a playbook for you guys to follow as a band. Like what was the hope for the band, like putting out records or touring or. We hoped to put out a record on a label that would get it distributed around the world or at mm -hmm. least around America. And so we made a demo, and you can hear that demo. It's been released as part of the reissue of the first album. And it's most of the same songs. It almost sounds the same as the album. The Rhino one, right? The Rhino double CD thing that came out a couple of years? Well, I guess a while back now. Yeah. So there are, I think, Blister in the Sun, Kiss Off, Breaking Up, waiting for the bus and gone daddy gone i think on there those were the demos that we made that we sent around to record labels 100 record labels and the only label that wanted us was slash wow that's so weird too because those songs are all so killer out of the gate and like you're saying like when you listen to the you know, obviously it's a little more polished on the album itself, but when you listen to those demos on that reissue, sonically, they're not that far off. Like, it's just so weird that only Slash could hear it. And even that, that took a lot of uh, pressure from like the staff were pressuring the the brass at, at the, the Slash. They didn't want it. They didn't want it either, but the staff were constantly playing it until finally they said, Okay, if we sign this band, will you stop playing this shit in the office? <laughs> so, yeah. Had you guys gone out and played there? Had they seen you live yet? No. Uh, we played in New York, and we got a big uh, review in the New York Times. Because mm. we played, we supported Richard Hell on his comeback gigs. And, of course, we blew him off the stage. And... Uh, that's basically what the New York Times said. Yeah. So it was based on like even it's it's so wild to think that even on the strength of that review, that it, you know, and those songs, that it wouldn't be something more than just slash hearing it. But like, but you know, like I guess we're like we're talking about. There's not really an act that, that kind of you guys are following in the path of. Like you guys are definitely creating your own world, and still like there's no band that sounds like the Violent Femmes. Well, the only other one that sounds like us predates us, and that's the Modern Lovers. Yeah. I guess, you know what, I never really appreciated the influence on it, but I can definitely hear that now. Especially Jonathan's later stuff when he was acoustic. Mm. But Gordon didn't know about that. Um, I did. And Gordon, Gordon opened up for Jonathan, but Gordon had not ever heard Jonathan. <laughs> And then Jonathan <laughs> told him, like, hey, you sound kind of like how I sounded when I was your age. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, I, I could talk to you forever, and I don't want to keep you all night, but I, there's a couple questions I've been dying to ask you forever. Uh, first of all, why did Rocks only come out in Australia? 
Well, we were doing a tour in Australia, and I guess whatever the previous album was, which was probably Why Do Birds Sing, I mm -hmm. guess, mm -hmm. yeah, was already, we already had toured in Australia for that album. So we had no new, nothing new in the market, and the record company just asked us if we'd put together an EP. But of course, we allocated about a week to make an EP and instead like in three days we made a whole album so we released that only in Australia because we had a tour coming up there and then we didn't think about it much and then eventually it did get released in the states I think there's like four of my favorite songs that you guys do on that record like I think that thing is so underrated and I remember having to get it as a kid because it wasn't released in Canada I had to buy a CD and trade it from the CD store because for some reason it was a promo they couldn't sell it to me or something it was it was a lot of ordeal to get it but it was worth it like um and Sweet World of Angels is only out now as a live version I don't think that's out on streaming services or out in sort of the larger uh, oh, really? internet world now. So that album is not on the streaming services. To the best of my knowledge, every time I look for it, because there is a live version of Sweet World of Angels, but I think that's like one of the all-time best songs. And uh, yeah, I think the, only that live version is out there. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. Um, Maybe we need to reissue it again. Uh, yeah, definitely. I would love to get that on vinyl. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about, like, were bands like DOA and Black Flag and those types of bands coming through? Milwaukee like who were some of the touring acts that would come through yeah those bands and uh, Bad Brains Minutemen yeah a lot of those bands uh, which were kind of associated with hardcore mm -hmm. punk they all came through I used to do I did posters for them like I did a poster for TSOL once and i can't remember but yeah well, there were a lot of a lot of bands i gotta see these posters that's that flipper, flipper, <laughs> yeah that sounds amazing i got you got to put out a poster book of just all your old punk flyers at some point <laughs> <laughs> uh well brian anytime you want to come back on here and talk about punk rock or hardcore please know the door is always open and once again thank you for years of incredible music also with the hardcore, there were there were a few good bands in Milwaukee like uh, Sacred Order, Decroitson, and then Tar Babies were from from Madison. We knew all of them, and we were they they th they thought of us as kind of commercial or so, you know something, but you know we liked them. Oh, they had, well, what about Mech Mensch? Were they from Milwaukee? Yep, yep they were. And they're, FI, you know them? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there were, and then that was just one part of the music scene in Milwaukee. There were a lot of, a lot of different factions. Well, I think that's the thing about the Midwest is it's like a, a you know, I'm a record nerd, as you can see, I'm kind of surrounded by 45s and, and it's like a, it's a treasure trove. Like it's, it's like panning for gold because there's just so many great, garage rock bands you know it's like the second garage rock boom like we we're talking about the count five and the seeds this is sort of the the next great american garage rock boom was this period we're talking about where you have all these people finally given permission to make music taking it in completely different places and then of course there was also um old skull yes a well, tragic band 
Yeah, they, 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 at the time, well, of course, at the time we thought it was so cool and fun and cute, you know, but then it turned out to be, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. It, it's, it's difficult to really understand that whole story, whether they would have been better off never having made music, mm -hmm. whether that's what led to their demise. And then there was another dude that was in the scene but completely sui generis, which was Wesley Willis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all circulating around the same time. What an amazing period. You know, like, what a what an incredible thing for creativity of all these different people kind of, like, doing this at the same time period. Because, like you're saying, like, with maybe the exception of Old Skull, where there is such a tragedy to it, like, just so many artists that were, you know, got out in the world that might not have gotten out in the world otherwise, especially in the case of Wesley Willis. Like there's a good chance without sort of this platform, he might not have been heard otherwise. Yep. It was, a, it was a really healthy time for creativity. And at the time we just thought it was normal, but it's interesting to look back on it and see it for what it was. Was there resentment towards you guys because you guys found so much success and like went to LA and kind of like did, did it a different way? Yeah, I remember there was a one of the bands was kind of following me on the street. I can't remember who it was. Might have been Sacred Order or but anyway, one of the one of the hardcore punk bands from Milwaukee were following me and saying stuff like sell out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and then and I was just thinking to myself because at that time, yes, we had signed a re recording contract. Our advance was zero dollars. Yeah. I was homeless. I was like couch surfing, but I was still a sellout. <laughs> Success. That's the ultimate sellout. You can't ever get people liking your band or then you sell out. <laughs> right. uh, Brian, anytime you're welcome on this show. Thank you for this. All right. Take it easy. Thank you, Brian, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Brian will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. Hopefully we get some SST stories, you know? We didn't get a chance to get to the SST stories this time, but maybe next time. Speaking of next time, next time on the show, a completely different place in the punk rock universe, but one that is equally, maybe even somewhat more important to me on a personal level. Coming up on the next episode of the show, from the band Los Curos, from the band Limp Wrist, from the band Needles, from What the Fuck Fanzine, from Lingua Armada Records, one of, I, I, I tell him he's my personal Liam Mackay, Martin Crudo will be here on the show. And if you do not know Martin, you don't know DIY Hardcore. This guy is, is, I don't know, a legend. There's no other way to put it. One of the greatest front people of all time. Just listen to the episode. Listen to Crudos. If you've never heard of Crudos, listen to Los Crudos. Listen to Limpress. Listen to all these bands, but oh my gosh, I'm so, so, so psyched for you to hear this episode. This is one of those people that I've wanted to come on for years, didn't think it was going to happen, and then Tristan reached out to Martine and, and it all came together, and oh, thank you, Tristan. And thank you for listening. That's the end of this episode. Coming up uh, in a few short days, I'll be back to you.
But that is that. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths. And just We need to realize that the stuff we're talking about here, like people's rights to just live their lives, aren't political issues. These are just issues of, of human rights. So this isn't political stuff. This is just basic human rights stuff. Someone choosing what they want to do with their reproductive rights, that's not a political issue to me. That's a human rights issue. They should have the right to choose that, you know? So go out there, get involved. There's organizations that are are working to pull it, you know, political pressure. There's protests. There's all sorts of places that you can lend your support to helping shape the world into a world that you want to see. That's what it comes down to. Like, what kind of world do you want to be in? And do you want, you know, maybe your kids, maybe not your kids. Do you want other generations to live in? Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. You don't. So, you know, give it to someone else. Maybe they can live a long, happy life. I've seen what it can do for people getting an organ transplant. So, yeah, sign sign that card. Uh, go there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Starting a podcast, that is that is the easiest thing in the world, you know? Start a band. Look at look at Brian. Look at the Violent Femmes. They were hated, hated in Milwaukee, and they changed the course of music forever, you know? MXPX, like Mike Carrera's talking about it. Like, you know, me, like there, there's so many people that have been impacted by this band. It's just, uh, you just never know where it's going to go. But you don't have to start a band. You could also... Start a record label, start a pod. Well, I said start a podcast. Start a, You do something. Just put yourself out there creatively. Draw a picture. Uh, try meditating. I didn't think it would work, and it kind of works for me. So maybe it'll work for you. Who knows? But you're no worse off having tried it. It's like 10 minutes out of your life at most. And I know the first time sucks. Probably take a few times before it, it clicks in. But when it does click in, it can really help. So maybe it's worth a shot. And I think that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you or, or, or speak to you on the next episode.